Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome, everyone, to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm here with my good friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Always good. My name is Michael Walker, and we are So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. And I'd like to welcome all the new listeners, and I thought this would be a good time just to restate what we do here. We'll never have any sponsors, we'll never have any ads, and we do not pull any punches. We let you know what we think about board games even though we are so very wrong, but we will be consistently wrong, so you'll be able to gauge how you feel about what we say. And we also value your time. So with that in mind, what we do here is we're going to talk about the games we played last week, the news, and why it doesn't matter, and we're going to be reviewing our feature game this week, which is Tricarion Legends of Illusion. So with that in mind, Walker, what did you play last week? I played a game called Endless Winter Paleo-Americans. This is a game that I kickstarted, Mark, and usually I just try to shelf the idea and not play around with it until it actually comes in. But this uh, this publisher, Fantasia Games, has done a great job of updating the rules continuously and updating the, the tabletop simulator uh, mod. So we decided, I decided to give it a try, and I'm really looking forward to it finally coming out in the real version. You're putting out workers, and you're playing cards to, you know, improve their uh, results, and you have this big chieftain or chief person, and they you know, make the the actions that much more exciting. Chieftain is a gendered word for you? I, I don't know. I think know. chieftain is gender neutral. Is it? Good, good. <laughs> I, well, when it came out, I was like, oh, well, yeah, okay. Let's just keep going. Um, and yeah, so there's got multiple things going on. You're hiring, you know, you're uh, advancing your culture. You have this board where you're expanding out and all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, I don't know what else to say. Is there anything that sets it apart? Because that, that, uh, that actually makes it sound pretty generic to me. Uh, uh, it looks very, very nice. <laughs> oh um, wow! Damning with faint praise here. <laughs> it's feeling a little generic, but no. But the card play is nice. The fact that you get to you know sort of build your deck and cycle through the cards, and and they do have interesting effects, and you get to collect uh, like prehistoric animals, and you either are collecting them for sets or killing them for food, and it does have a lot going on. And the more I read into it, like at first while I was reading the rules, I go, "Oh, here we go again, another generic worker placement game," but. When all of these subsystems starts interact start interacting with each other, it starts to bring forth more of a game, more of something you can sort of plan out and 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 score victory points in different ways and not always just go for the same type of goal. I'm and looking did, forward to trying it. Did I understand you correctly? It has deck building. It does have. Deck so it's building. another worker placement with deck building, kind of like doing, no, no, no. This is not to be dismissive. Okay. This is very much the new thing. Yes, that's fine. It is another 
worker placement with deck building, 100%. It's got a very interesting worker placement where it has, I think, four different places you can put workers. And if you're the first one in, then you get to do all three stages of that action. And then everyone else that goes there afterwards only gets the two the two top parts of that action. So it's sort of got this race of, you know, should I go to this action first? Well, my chief is very good at this one particular action. Maybe I should go there first and that kind of thing. Yeah, reminiscent of Argent or even of Tricarion, for example. Yeah, just we'll be just, getting to that later. Just like that. So I played a game of Alter Quest. Alter Quest is the latest published release, actually, of the Sadler Brothers at Blacklist Games, uh, co-op dungeon crawly thing. And for the first time ever, actually, this made me appreciate some of the structural mechanical elements of Street Masters. I've commented before that one of the things I like about Ultra Quest when compared to Street Masters is during your turn you have three actions. You want to move three times? Go ahead. You want to play three cards? Go ahead. You want to draw three cards? Go ahead. As opposed to Street Masters, whereby it's very rigidly defined, you have a move action an action action, and a card action. And this tends to not only be more restrictive, but it also tends to trip players up to the extent that when they released the Aftershock expansion of Street Masters, they included tracker tokens so that people could remember what they'd done in what order. But here in Alter Quest, that what that does is it puts a certain burden on the deck of your deck of cards that sometimes the game conspires to make mean that it can't hold up its end of the bargain. What I mean is, in this particular combination of effects in Ultra Quest, because it's just as modular as all the other Sadler Brothers designs, very reminiscent of Sentinels of the Multiverse, where you've got a deck, deck doing its own thing, a deck for the environment, a deck for the enemies, and a deck for you. Ultra Quest decides to split up the enemies into two different decks, so you have four decks to manage. But the opposition we were facing prevented card draws. And as a result, what this does was this put further pressure on just your innate abilities. The cards tended to recede in the background. Plus, I felt that the character I I was playing didn't have very interesting cards. So as a result, almost all that I was doing was just moving and using my items, which was less interesting. It was less cool. There were less interesting effects. We were able to get the job done. We won the game. And I was able to do effective things. But as I've said before, I don't like it when the effective play is at odds with the cool play or the fun play. And I was actually kind of longing for the slightly more rigid, slightly more staid approach of Street Masters, where your card, the card effects are expected to necessarily compose a certain proportion of your turn every turn. And the entire game is pitched around that. Now, it's worth noting also that uh, I've had the Aftershock massive, almost cube-like thing just sitting next to my game table. So over the course of the past two weeks, I've knocked out at least half a dozen solo games of Street Masters because it's just so quick. But I do appreciate now watching, I've said this before, watching the modular deck system evolve and change and adapt to the needs of the setting and adapt to the needs of whatever system system changes they're implementing over Blacklist games. And I'll also repeat that I'm very much looking forward to Hour of Need, the superhero version, because it looks to be a sort of distillation of some of the interesting ideas of the Ultra Quest system, but also a lot faster, because Ultra Quest is a solid two hours, which I think is just at the outside limit of what is acceptable for uh, a game of that ilk to be, namely one of the modular deck systems. So I've been playing a lot of Blacklist games over the past week or so, especially a lot of Street Masters, but I also got to revisit Ultra Quest, and I am very pleased at all the time I've been spending with the works of the Sadler Brothers. On the same theory of knocking out things solo, there's a great tabletop simulator mod for Fantasy Realms, and we were asked on the Guild to give Fantasy Realms a try. So this is designed by Bruce Glasgow and published by WizKids, and if you're into luck, then then this game... (laughs) No, no, I'm going to be serious. There is... There is there is a, a direct collation to Red Rising in this game. 
Well, yes, I mean, they acknowledged as much in the rulebook of Red Rising. Jamie Stegmeier said, I didn't know how how I was going to do this game, and then I played Fantasy Realms, so I decided to do my riff on Fantasy Realms. Yes, but this leads me to believe that there is a definite link to luck and how long a game takes. Sure. And I really feel as though Fantasy Realm has hit that balance perfectly, and this is why people like it as much as they do, because it I feel it's very luck-based, but... The games are so quick, it doesn't matter. You can just go again and try your luck again. And like almost like a lottery or or you know, those type of things. You know, pull the lever, watch the thing spin, see if you're going to Rula. win this time. Right? Maybe this time I'll get that combo I, I really, really want. Because there is really no player interaction. And people are gonna say, Well, you just gotta see what cards people are taking and you know, not give them those cards. Well, by not giving them those cards, you're you're giving up your vital. You're gumming up your own your hand deck yeah. space, right? So that is not player interaction. Okay, so what you're just hoping you're looking at your initial hand, you're drawing your card, and from those eight cards, you're planning your you know what combo am I going to go for this game? What series of combos even? Exactly, and then you're just hoping for the best because the game you know is over so quickly. You're just hoping to hit that 200 point mark roughly, and then you've done quite well. Okay, a couple of things. First of all, normally here on So Far About Games, we do not explain how to play a game. Fantasy Realms will make an exception. You deal out seven cards to every player on your turn. You draw a card either from the dis- face up discards or from the deck, and then you discard a card face up to the table. That's the game. <laughs> the game lasts until there are 10 f- discards on the table, and then you score. So, the second thing I'd like to point out, and this is in the general context of your comment about this being a great tabletop simulator mod, I think you are guilty of understatement. Because this tabletop simulator module is, I think by far and away, the single greatest electronic adaptation of a board or card game that I've played over the course of the past year. No holds barred. No holds barred. There's full AI. There's a full AI component uh, opponents scalable. It is. It finally involves the thing that I've wanted tabletop simulator to do forever, and indeed most third party adaptations of games forever. If I will play a, for me to play a card, I just want to click the card. I don't have to drag it. I don't have to hit a hotkey and manipulate my mouse. I just want to click on the card to play the card. Thank you very very much. To draw a card, I just want to click on a card. That's what I want to do when playing a card game. Is this too much to ask? Apparently, most of the time it is. So. I immediately looked at who did this app. It's by a creator by the name of Raimund Flame, and I immediately started tracking down their other offerings because, oh my goodness, this is literally a sea change in the quality of app implementation. But my final note before I go on to other adaptations, because I immediately went and tracked down uh, the, the, the rest of the catalog and played a whole bunch more of, of the adaptations, more on all those later, Fantasy Realms in person, I don't think it's going to be as fast as you make it out to be because you have to figure out the score. I'm oh, sorry. I, I hadn't finished. I said I will never play it in sure. real life with people. I will only play it with this mod. You know, I wanted to make sure I got into this. I tracked, semi-tracked my games because it's I played anywhere from 60 to 75 games of Fantasy Realm. Whoa. Yeah, in the last three days. All five minutes? Yes. And it, it, it's just that fast. It's play it. The the mod adds your score automatically. It is a fantastic mod. And like the they've said on the guild, it is slightly addicting. And I think it's only because this mod does it so well. Yeah, most people, my understanding is, I could be wrong. My perception is that most people who play it in person use some kind of scoring app. Because the scoring will take longer than the actual game in many instances. I'm, yes. I'm, I'm quite convinced. Very much like 
Space Alert does, but not as an enjoyable way. Yeah, and I'm wondering if if sometimes the scoring isn't done properly because there's so many interactions with the card. It's like yes. this blocks this and this, this does that and that. And I'm I'm sure a lot of the times something is missed. Plus eight points for every flame you have, unless of course you have this certain artifact, in which case that's another minus fifteen. Oh, but either one of those might be blanked by some other card you've got. Every- yeah, so a whole bunch of text interactions. It's a deck of fifty six cards of unique te- text effects. And sure, the first few times that I played it, because I played it a handful of times myself, you you see all these new cards, like, wow, those are kind of clever. This this Beast Lord wants this bow and likes having beasts as well, but also counts as a wizard, so interacts with these other cards. And then by the end of it, you're just down to clicky, clicky, clicky. It's- yeah, and and it, I don't think it is a mistake that in the very last page of the rule book, it, it shows you, like, the ultimate hand. <laughs> yes. Right? It's like, look, you can get 380 points. Well, they needed to pad out the rule book somehow because the rules take one small it's page. It's true, but I don't think it's just that. It's just to show you what, you know, what, you know, give you sure. that little taste and then so you have something to drive for constantly type thing. I myself, when playing Fantasy Realms, when being exposed to it, had the thought, Do would I rather have something like Fantasy Realms or would I rather have something like Red Rising? Because, yes, Red Rising, you spend, uh, it is a much longer game, but the scoring is simpler because each card only has one effect and it tends to only affect itself overwhelmingly as opposed to the, uh, the scoring effects on Fantasy Realms. And there's more to it. There's, there's a better sense of trying to manipulate the card flow, of trying to access cards that are not immediately available. There's the element of scoring points from other areas than just the cards in your hand. So I don't know. I wasn't hugely enamored of Red Rising. I'm definitely pretty dismissive of Fantasy Realms on its own terms. As an app that takes 30 seconds to play, sure, maybe every once in a while I might be inclined to fire it up because it's cute and inoffensive. In person, absolutely hard pass, even as a filler. If I want to play something that simple and that quick, just in terms of fun things happening, I'd much rather play something like Love Letter. In Love Letter, fun things happen. You get to try to guess who somebody is and knock somebody out, and it's funny and you have a laugh, and it doesn't mean anything, and you're not really engaging in choices. There are lots of very, very simple card games where you can do that. Win, loser, banana is another good example. That's fine. It's fine. But I don't want a protracted five to ten minute periods of scoring at the end of it. So I mentioned Red Rising just because I do not know if it, if you're going to start with something that simple, build your best hand of cards and score points from that, whether it is better to go the Fantasy Realms route or try to dress it up with a little bit more structure like Red Rising. For what it's worth, I'd be interested in trying Red Rising again, especially with more players. But I can definitely say the Fantasy Realms, it's an interesting exercise in minimalism, except for the scoring bit. And I'm glad that there was an app, so I got to try it. It's definitely a game you have to play more than once, right? Because like you said... Is it though? The, well, no, but like you said, the rules explanation is dead simple. But until you internalize how all the cards interact, it's really not much of a game. Would it be worth the mental effort to internalize how all the cards interact? There's 56 unique cards. You get your initial hand. That's the other great sin of, of games like this in terms of actual decision making. Your hand at the end of the game is going to be substantially similar to what your hand was at the beginning of the game. Yes, you can modify it, but it's going to be over before you can undergo complete turnover the overwhelming majority of the time. So what's the point in trying to understand the nuances of, oh, I've got this scepter. I do know that somewhere in the deck there's some special fandangle that bejewels the scepter and gives me a bonus 50 points. What are the odds it's going to come out? Minimal, but (laughs) it's it's knowing that it's there is the game. I think that is the game. All right. You know what I mean? I think that is So Twilight Struggle is no good. But devoting a comparable amount of mental effort to knowing the deck of Fantasy Realms is worth it. I think that is the game. Okay. (laughs) So that's Fantasy Realms. On the topic of Rhyme and Flame adaptations, 
I also got to try Fuji Flush. Fuji Flush is a card game by Friedman Freeze, who, as we've said before, is a very interesting designer. And there is a definite strategy to Fuji Flush that is somewhat similar to the strategy in Fantasy Realm. That is draw good cards. You definitely need to draw good cards in Fuji Flush. There's more to it, and I could go into it, but why bother? It is worth about the same amount of time and effort as a game of Fantasy Realms. At least you are not burdened by scoring. Whoever disperses all their cards just is out. But uh, definitely look for those high cards. That 20, that ni- those 19s, those 18, yeah, they'll, they'll do you well. Those 2s and 3s, not so good. If you drew them, you're stupid. It's straight stupid. And that's Fuji Flush. Much like uh, Re- Regicide. You know, you got those little cards, then you're dumb. On to very interesting, <sighs> silly games. Mark, this is a very interesting game that I'd like to show you on Board Game Arena called Go Nuts for Donuts. Long time ago, I'm sure I've talked about uh, Giro Gallipolo. It's like a children's horse racing game, and you have a deck of six cards, and there's all this double think of what other people are going to play. I thought it was a strange turn when they then decided to do the World War One version of the children's game, Giro Gallipoli. It was very dark, it very was inappropriate, very odd, strange right? Strange move. And the figures that came with it. Ooh, so, no, yeah, no, okay. no, 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 no. Anyway, no, that's yeah, we not, not going to it. So anyway, in Go Nuts for Donuts, it is sort of, sort of like this amalgamation of Nadavalier and Sushi Go. So you're going to have a range of... Uh, dwarves eating sushi. Yes, dwarves eating sushi. I'd play that game. You're going to have a row of cards, uh, N plus one cards, and everyone's going to have a corresponding number of cards. So say there's four cards in the display, everyone's going to have four cards numbered one through four. And everyone's going to put down a card face down on what they want, and everyone flips it up, and if someone has a unique number, they get to keep that card. If the same people have voted for the same card, nobody gets it, and it's that sort of, you know, collect different sets of stuff. And very silly, very quick, very fun. It is designed by Zachary Eagle and put out by GameRight. Go nuts for donuts. So playing these quick card games adapted by Ramon Flame, it made me remember, and I, I hate having to do this. This is one aspect of going through a substantial churn, either as a collector or as a critic or whatever, or just as a consumer in your contemporary board game market. I hate the fact that my feeble brain can't even just remember the number of classics of really, really, well, classic is a loaded term. I don't want to start getting into how old something needs to be in order to classic. But the true exemplars in the field. And if you want to play... A very quick card game with interesting scoring combinations, but there's actually substance to it. Fairy Tale stands head and shoulders above most of the rest in its ilk. And so when I saw that Ramon Flame had adapted Fairy Tale along with Fuji Flush and Fantasy Realms, I'm like, well, this is the quick card game to beat. And for years, I would play Fairy Tale at almost every game gathering, you know, two or three times to player, play it while people are, are showing up. And uh, I will say that the AI for fairy tale uh is terrible it's absolutely awful and i think that it's you know it's a testament to ramon flame that they, that they were able to get full ai implementation of these tabletop simulator mods at all but when it comes to fuji flush and fantasy realms these are very 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 simple scoring algorithms you can make with fantasy realms especially it's like what is the best seven cards out of this hand that i've got in front of me it's like well that's the discard the eighth there you go in Fairy Tale, one of the geniuses of fairy tale is that as far as drafting games go and i include this among Brilliant drafting games that I really, really, really like, like Blood Rage, or even drafting games that I don't enjoy, like the the drafting version of Terraforming Mars, very often they make the opportunity cost of hate drafting too too powerful. And so at the end of the day, you're all just you're just taking the card that's best for you. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's some virtue to that. 
But the way fairy tale works is you always have to be super conscious of what everyone else has, and you cannot feed them the card they need, or the, you will absolutely get hammered. And the AI in fairy tale, as adapted in tabletop simulator, doesn't do that. They were just constantly feeding me cards, and in the suboptimal AI decisions, it was reminding me of how good the game was because I kept seeing what what the AI was passing me. It's like this would never happen in real life. No human player would do this. <laughs> And it was just reminding me how, how beautiful the decision-making is and the tension between, yes, because sometimes you have the card that your opponent desperately needs, but there's also that card that you're really looking for and you start to worry about which one to take. And maybe you can just pass the problem on to the person downstream. Maybe it's the person to, your right, uh, to the right of you. It's their problem now. They have to make that decision anyway. And then you have to give them the look. You know, there's always, you have to, oh, yeah. You have to make sure you mention the table talk because the table talk is one of the key... You, you yeah, yeah. You, put, you put the cards face down in front of them and say, it's your problem now. <laughs> or, Don't let us down. Or you just look at them. These are your cards, not his cards. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Fairy Tale is a marvelous, marvelous game. It is a shame that more people aren't playing it. It is absolutely one of my favorite filler-length card games, and it ha- does so many things that Fantasy Realms does well, and then a whole bunch of other things besides. But the key is, Mark, what art do they use in this table? There's only one series? art set. It's the there are different sets of iconography, but there's only one art set. Okay. There's only one set of drawings. I don't have strong opinions about. They, they use the most recent Z-Man printing with all the uh, additional cards okay. that were in, in, introduced in the revised version. Oh, so they have the what? What, what is that weird or, thing they have? I haven't not played with it very often, like oracles or eggs or. Yes, the chaos egg is in there. Yeah, I've not played with that very often, oh. so I'll have to give it a whirl. So yes, highest possible recommendation for Fairy Tale. So on Twitch, we played Cryo. This is designed by Tom Jolly and Luke Laurie, published by Z-Man Games. It is a worker placement where you get to withdraw your workers back to your little tableau at any point in time you like. And you get to build little interesting engines for when you recall them, they, you know, work these engines. And so everything has a cost. You get to choose what the cost is, and then you get to choose what your benefit is. And your your spaceship has crash landed on the planet and all of your passengers are in hypersleep and you have to pay to wake them up and then put them immediately to work. That, that's kind of annoying, isn't it? You're like, you wake up, you learn that you've just crashed on, on a planet. That's it's a not, rough deal. That's not the planet you're supposed to be on. And now you're being told to get to work. That's pretty rough. They can demand to see the manager of the I, airport. I think so. I think they need to get a refund. So yes, so you're putting your guys to work immediately or or women, how, whatever the case may be. And I'm enjoying this game more and more that I play it. But while I was sitting here thinking about it, I think there's only, to build your engine, you're taking these actions and you're taking these little chits and putting them in your board. Now, I think there's only one of those card action chits. And I think that makes it a little too powerful just having one of them on the board. So I'm going to have to play with it more to see how that works out because I really like how they do that particular action. It's just do a card action, which entails so many things. It just makes it nice and easy. It means play a card, draw a card. Well, you can play a card in one of three ways, or you can draw a card, either one. Yeah, yeah. So it's nice and simple. Love love the game. What do you think on additional plays? I agree with you. I'm liking it more and more. I think that there's more opportunities to exploit that quasi-tableau building element that you talked about because you can burn the tokens for the resources indicated on them. And unless you have the specific card that rewards you for having tokens on your board at the end of the game, every token that's there on your board at the end of the game is a wasted opportunity. And so first game, I was just playing with getting my action lines just right. And you asked at the end of the game, how much did you change up 
your action lines that you triggered during recall. And I said, not a whole heck of a lot, but I appreciated having the opportunity. Second game, I was changing it up a lot. I had different action lines for different purposes. Third, fourth, fifth game, maybe I'm going to get to the point where not only am I changing up the lines all the time, I'm burning tokens for resources when I need them, and I'm using them for a burst of productivity at the end of the game, which for what it's worth is also thematic. As you're settling all your people in the caves underground, you don't need your infrastructure anymore that represents your, your, your drone capability. Anyway, I love the art, love the card play. I'm really, really enjoying Cryo. Yeah, the other interesting part is that you're, you start with three drones. You're ever only going to get three drones, which are your workers, but you have six different lines you can return them to. So you get to set it up how you want, and like you said, pick and choose as you bring them back and, and hit different lines and, and you know disperse other lines when you don't need them anymore. And the tempo is delicious. Like you can easily fall into a rhythm of sending out all of your workers before you call them back. But I don't think that's optimal. I really think you have to look and say, well, what's the opportunity cost? If I pull them back earlier, well, then I get to activate this really great line again. So maybe like... I, 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 a couple of times over the course of our games of Cryo have sent out a single worker and then recalled. But I really think that I should be doing that more often. Not all the time, obviously. It no. depends. But, but the like, option is but great. But like I said, there's been many games that have had that option where, you know, you get to pull your work. And it's never come to – this This time I think it actually does. Like you said, you look at the board. To the greatest and, extent, yeah. And you say – there's no – I don't get to do what I want, so I'll just pull back my two workers and, and get, get – yeah, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. 100% they hit it this time. Yeah. Cryo, Cryo is a real winner. I really, really like Cryo. Played another game of Imperium the Contention, the card-only, almost kind of 4X but not really game by Gary Dworetsky at Contention Games. Played three players again, still haven't had the chance to play four players, which by popular account is the is the best way, but quite frankly, I don't care. With players with greater experience of the game, even our conflict-averse, overly peaceful, not wanting to step on other people's cho- toes, but still insisting that combat exists... We've come into this before. We our, our local groups sometimes fall into perverse sets of preferences. They want combat to be an option, and they will almost never take it, which is a strange way to approach games, but whatever. It, let, let us call this the Louis paradigm. Despite the fact that this is an accurate description of how many of our friends seek to play games, in the second game with people... Uh, well, I, I, this is my third game, but this is the second game for Huey and Louie in particular. The conflict started in turn two. It was immediate and it was much more satisfying there was much more back and forth and we had a little bit of an opportunity to put a greater stress on the scoring system of the game because as we've commented before when you have multiplayer free-for-alls in conflict games you you have to balance things very carefully to prevent a series of potential problems among them the dreaded kingmaker problem among them a fights b and c wins we didn't see that manifest it was right down to the wire Everyone was about a turn away from winning. Everyone was in each other's faces all the time. There were, there wasn't really negotiation, but there were some sort of subtle ad hoc kind of arrangements of ganging up on people. But it was never a case that it was just sort of a king of the hill bash the leader the entire time. And cool things got to happen. I really like the card design and the various elements that come into play. You get the flavor of a 4X game without any of the kind of labored economic subsystems that is increasingly common with modern 4X games. Now, I love me some labored economic subsystems, and I do still like Eclipse, but Eclipse kind of falls apart in this whole sort of multiplayer conflict dynamics as we commented in our review. Whereas Imperium the Contention is like, eh, we're just going to give you a deck full of neat things and go throw them at somebody's face. So I, I find it really satisfying. I think it squares the circle in a lot of ways, and I really think that its close cousin is Quantum in a very 
in a very real way, despite the fact that they play entirely differently. They're both sort of 45-minute to an hour, not-quite-4X games where conflict is constant, and you get to do fun things. So I really highly recommend Imperium the Contention if that's the kind of thing that you're looking for. Yeah, I'm looking forward to trying it again. I, as I say, I'd really like to try it with four players. How do you like the, the mod for it? Does it work out all right? It's good. Good. So we really liked Gods Love Dinosaurs by Panasaurus Games. And when they brought out another small box game, I jumped all over it, hoping that it had the same sort of surprise. And Gods Love Dinosaurs isn't a small box game, is it? I mean, it's well, comparatively, comparatively okay, small okay. to what they normally put out. Okay. So we got to play Umbra Via. This is designed by Connor Wake, and like I said, put out by Panasaurus Games. And then in this game, you have energy flowers and soul flowers. That you do. And you have to make sure they're different. But it does, using those two together, that being said, it does have this very interesting mechanism that sort of, that keeps the game balanced. Because if someone starts winning, they're they're choking their bag in with all these soul flowers, which which will help them win tiles, but will not help them score. If that makes any sense, with well, yeah, there's light. This, it's very hard to explain without yes. seeing the components and getting a full rules explanation. There's a process where you engage in two rounds of blind bidding, and then whoever quote unquote wins the tile then places the tile. But winning the tile doesn't necessarily help you score unless you have the right kind of flowers and or unless you place the tile in a clever way. I thought it. I thought it was very interesting. I thought it brought a lot of different things to the table, like this two rounds of bidding and different uh, things that you use to, you know, the like we said, even though it, you know, they're two different things. It's interesting that they count for different parts of the game, and I'm, I would like to try it a couple more times. I very much enjoyed the two-phase bidding. I thought that this was a solid innovation in blind bidding because I find blind bidding often very unsatisfactory. Uh, what happens is you pull three flowers from your bag. Some of them are good at bidding. Some of them are good at scoring. And you then allocate them in a blind bidding fashion. They're revealed, and then you do the same thing again. You pull three more, and then you blindly allocate them, secretly allocate them, and then they're revealed. So it had a nice balance between the sort of guesstimation involved in blind bidding, and it didn't have a situation where you go all in on something, you put all six of your bids somewhere, and nobody else went there. So you're, you're less apt to feel like you wasted that. So that, that I thought was really neat. I have... Uh, some concerns about the catch-up elements. So there's this term in, typically in electronic racing games of rubber banding AI. You know, you're in the lead and then suddenly uh, some car behind you starts going way faster than it should be so as to be able to catch up. And sometimes you have catch-up mechanisms in board games that feel the same. I kind of felt like Umbravia was was kind of kicking that in hard. And it's hard to tell after one play, but it really did feel like by virtue of the way the bidding worked in terms of just the way your flowers flowed through your bag and in terms of how you actually win in terms of the scoring, the game definitely has its interest in making sure that everyone is one placement away. And that can be fine in terms of keeping people engaged, but we did end up in a borderline king-making situation, and we did end up in a situation where in the last round there were any one of three tiles that would help any one of two different players win of the three. And so I wonder if it may be a little bit too balanced for its own good. But yeah, I'd try it again. It was quick. It was clever in a number of ways. The theme is indecipherable nonsense. Yes. Something, something about the path of your soul. Something, something. Here so are some flowers. That something, we're something. throw in a sewer tunnel and Yeah, there points. was a garden, I think. And, and maybe yeah. the real garden is the friends you made along the way. I don't know. <laughs> But it's an abstract bidding tile placement game. Well, what do you want? The title brings it all together. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. Umbravia. Yeah, well, yeah, 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 yeah. Now it makes sense, right? You just didn't. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, I'd try it again, but I have my concerns. 
Got to play more sessions of Fast and Furious Highway Heist. This is going to tie in actually to our new, what I'm calling a featurette, Swag Presents Masterpiece Theater in honor of Mr. Vincent Diesel Esquire OBE, also in honor of Prospero Hall. So Fast and Furious Highway Heist is the licensed game by Prospero Hall. It has three different scenarios. I have now gone through and beaten all three scenarios. In one, you get to take down a tank. In one, you get to steal from a semi. And one, you get to take out both a helicopter and a sports car. I don't know how this works in the movies, as it will become clear later on in the featurette. I'm yet in my infancy in the Fast and or Furious franchise. But my understanding is that somebody saw Bruce Willis drive a car into a helicopter and said, hold my beer. And because uh, the way you do it in the in this scenario is you have to do it like four or five times. <laughs> Which... Sure, why not? Why I mean, not? It's as ridiculous as anything else. It, too, has just been left out close to my gaming table, and it's a very, very quick solo game. It's one of those weird games that doesn't say you can play it solo, but it's eminently soloable. I don't know why. Maybe there's a mass market bias against games that say you can play it with one player. But the toy factor is really neat, and I do like pulling out the little plastic cars. And now that I have some context for some of these people who like to drive really fast, I can say that this absolutely adds nothing to the game. And <laughs> I've just been having fun with the toy factor and moving little cars around. What can I say? It's it's cute, not really heavy on the game on on the strategic decision making, but the different scenarios feel a little bit different. You know, it gives me the illusion of thinking that maybe I should pick different drivers and different vehicles when probably at the end of the day it doesn't matter a whole heck of a lot. But for a, a, a cheap and accessible mass market tie-in, I don't think you could ask for a whole heck of a lot more. So I've been enjoying Fast and Furious Highway Heist, another solid, if not necessarily groundbreaking game by Prospero Hall. So you and I return to The Initiative, put out by Unexpected Games. This is where you're a bunch of teenagers that went to a rummage sale and took home a questionable board game, and, <laughs> and now you're playing it. And well, possibly being stalked by yeah, some middle-aged guy. Like weird lurker out the window staring yeah. in. And uh, I guess it's picking up a little bit. At first I thought it was just going to be a Wheel of Fortune guess the guess the words and the phrase. But it is, it's got a lot of more sort of code breaking and and figuring out different ways to manipulate letters and stuff. I remember when I first played Time Stories. That started to do interesting things with components and interesting things of hidden hiding clues here and there and everywhere. And you got to feel really clever and you got to do things with cards that felt I, I mean, vaguely subversive, you know, because it would instruct you, you would get these hidden clues to instruct you to do things outside the normal flow of the game. And the initiative is doing that a lot. And I don't know whether it's just uh, through overuse or exposure or I'm just accustomed to it now, but the same magic isn't there. It's kind of okay, you know, it'll tell you to, you'll, you'll find a secret message somewhere and it's like, ooh, pull a card and it'll do a thing. It's all right, I mean, but it's just the fundamental gameplay. I was about to say, the, the, the trek to get there, the, the, the moving through the, the actual game part of it is yes. so painful. <laughs> we have had the first inkling of what to do with some of the additional components. And we feel as though they should have given us more. I'm willing to give it one more shot. Because I want, I'm curious to see whether the scenario design is going to step up. Finally, for me, I played Stationfall. Stationfall was kickstarted not too long ago. It's designed by Matt Eklund at Iron Game Design. Let me repeat that: that is by Matt Eklund at Iron Game Design. Stationfall is a bizarre game. It is the way I would describe it is: imagine someone took a sci-fi sort of 
uh, traitor-esque paranoia game like The Menace Among Us and funneled it through the filter of, say, an early 80s work by Don Greenwood. I realize that's a reference that not a whole lot of people are going to make, but basically the Don Greenwood school of, of game design is if you need to have a whole bunch of rules subsystems that are only going to happen about once every five games, but they're in there because historically it happened once and or you think it would be cool, then you should probably include it. And then if players have to look it up every time it gets invoked, who cares? That's fine. That's a price worth paying. And that's definitely what happened with Stationfall. I was, I was being shepherded through the game very, very kindly by people who were being extremely patient. Allow me to stress this. They were being extremely patient because having read the, I read the rules. I read the rule book front to back and all it's, but this is, this is par for the course for, for a Matt Eklund game. You read the entire rules. You figure, I don't, I have no clue what's happening. And on top of my not having any clue of what was happening, several things happened over the course of the game that caused people who played the game four or five times to have to stop and then look up exactly how it worked as well. And not even just for the details around the margins. I mean, core gameplay functions of some of these things happening. Now, what do we see when this happens? Well, as a result, my general experience with games of this ilk, and this was definitely borne out in, in my game of Stationfall, is that things tend to go down to the lowest common denominator. In other words, what's the simple thing that you can do that leads to something fun and vaguely cool happening? Well, in the case of Stationfall, this is whacking people upside the head with a wrench. That happened a lot. <laughs> Very quickly, it decided... <laughs> Whirling through the corridors oh, yeah. with your spanner spinning. One of them was the medbot. <laughs> the medbot actually was very, very good at leading a trail of carnage because the medbot's special ability is it doesn't cost them an action, of which you only get two every round, to move into an area with a downed human. Since we had already been downing humans a fair bit, I gave the medbot a wrench, and then the, the medbot was off to the races <laughs> and could get almost anywhere on the map and down someone else. And, of course, this, this also interacts with the, with the game's guilt system, because if you perform an act of violence when the power is on and the camera's on, you might move your guilt up, which will preclude you from winning the game unless you deliver evidence to the authorities if you hit station fall if you're alive, but you only transmit data at the right place unless a certain system is down, the jammers are down, then you can transmit data more easily. I could go on. I suppose I'd rather just leapfrog around with the med bot and hit people with a wrench. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, but that's just it. I, I think it's not a coincidence that this is what newbie players did. Again, I'm I don't naturally go for violence, and I wasn't the only one who decided. Well, this doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. Tops off, boys, and just it's time for Donnybrook. And so it was Tilly time all over the place. So Stationfall is still being modified. It's still being tinkered with. This is a pre-production version available on... It's an official mod on Tabletop Simulator. But things have changed. The current iteration, characters only get two actions a turn. And again, this is the kind of chaos that games like this often happen. So you can try to play it straight and escape the station. Or you can descend into, into mindless violence. But escaping the station causes you to spend most of your time just trying to get from point A to point B. Because it's so laborious to get anywhere. And as a result people are going to naturally gravitate towards, oh, that person's making a run for it. Well, I know how to down them really easily. Bang. And so naturally, the characters that don't care about survival and actually give you point benefits for there being death, destruction, and mayhem, well, guess what? <laughs> they tend to do rather well. Again, I don't want to overgeneralize from my one experience of Station Vault, but I've been playing games that have been designed this way over the course of about 40 years. And there's a reason why this style of design has fallen out of favor. I mean, would I play again? I don't know, but I would insist on not being the one expected to teach the game. I would, I would expect a Sherpa experience again where someone's like, all right, this is how the game works. 
because there are just too many subsystems for me to wrap my head around for the quality of decision-making involved. It's a very interesting design in that it produces funny moments, but mostly the funny moments I had were just, you know, again, a a medbot running around with a wrench whacking people upside the head. So that was my experience. It sounds like, it sounds like pretty fun. No, that, that was fun. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, ha- I, I remember having equally pointed moments of amusement in a game like The Menace Among Us, where something interesting and, and, and amusing would happen with a tenth of the rules overhead and with a lot more player engagement and a lot more sense of balance over the likelihood of getting out alive. So Stationfall is being developed. It might get to a place where mayhem is balanced better against organizational schema whereby people can escape alive. Maybe my experience was just extremely aberrant. Maybe I'm just a sociopath that likes to brain people with medbots. But as it is, I'd say it's a very, very interesting kind of experiment. And if you're the kind of person who reminisces fondly about that style of game design and says, why can't my party games come with incredibly dense and indecipherable rulebooks, then Station Falls for you. And those are the games we played this week. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Well, Mark, often we talk about when things go wrong. And I know I've talked about these things when they go right, but I want to make sure I make a a specific point. Stonemaier put out a comprehensive rulebook for Scythe, and there were some printing issues that I didn't even bother looking into, but free of charge, they sent everybody a brand new rulebook, spiral-bound, free shipping, came in the mail the other day. And the printing issues were only related to the legacy elements. It wasn't even any of the core gameplay elements. It was just the legacy stuff. So, And secondly, Mythic Games that had Reichbusters was chock full of problems, misprints, wrong cards, difficult rule books. Came in the mail the other day, a whole box, hundreds of cards, Mark. Hundreds of cards, three rule books, multiple pages of, of you know, like uh, the sheets, extra sheets that you came with the game. All free of charge, all out to every backer, all shipped for free. When these companies do these things that are fantastic, we got to make sure we call them out for it. Mythic Games and Stonemeyer, great job. Absolutely. Another thing, War Room 2nd Edition is coming out. Uh, I looked into it. There's not much there for people who have the first edition. It's much more of uh, component downgrades because they really wanted to bring the cost down. So this one could be you know, put out there for less than like the $200 price range. This one's going to be a lot cheaper. My understanding is the gold plating is being replaced by silver. That's right. The, you know, the inch thick cardboard tokens are only going to be half an inch thick and stuff. So barely a game. Barely a game, I'm sure. So if you like War Room, like anything like Axe and Allies, this is done by the designer that brought us Axe and Allies. Check out War Room. It is on Kickstarter. Second edition, it is on Kickstarter now. And speaking of things that are on Kickstarter, Mark, we played a game called Paris. And they have decided to do the usual, well, we can't do a Kickstarter for the same thing. So here is a four to five token uh, expansion (laughs) that you can buy. And look, here is Paris again, deluxe edition. So Paris (laughs) is back up on Kickstarter. If it's something you missed out on or heard that it was good, we played it. I I don't, I wouldn't mind it. I would, I would play it again if someone brought it out. It wasn't, didn't bring anything super exciting, but Paris on Kickstarter. So this is a weird sort of announcement. Uh, Chip Theory Games has announced they're going to be doing something Elder Scrolls-y. And they haven't even really announced that. They just, you know, teased a logo. I never really like it when movies or video games did promotions like this. I'm kind of miffed that this kind of, 
calculated ambiguity and vagueness has introduced itself in board game marketing. So yeah, who knows? Chip well, through your games. The something de- Elder Scrolls. The degree that the board game advertising is is skewing one way, like the fact that we're having like pre Kickstarter announcements and it's like the Kickstarter announcement will be soon. you know it, and, and it, this is happening at least we're not kickstarting announcements at the point where we're kickstarting announcements that's where I get off the train oh my goodness. if we ever start kick, if kickstarting announcements become mainstream I'm out of this hobby and lastly speaking of things announcing before they even come on a Kickstarter the designer of Zaya Legends of a Drift System is bringing out a game called Aridia the paths we dare tread. It's going to be another sandboxy, but the, it's it's. There's a new. You want buzzwords, Mark? I got buzzwords. New buzzwords. Roll to move. It's no green legacy. So it'll be legacy, but replayable. So you don't okay. throw it in the trash when it's done. So that'll be that's the new buzzword now. I mean, most legacy games claim that green legacy. It's canon. Okay. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to our feature game, which is Tricarian. Legends of Illusion. Illusions, Illusions, Michael. Illusions. So this was put up by Mind Clash Games in 2015. This was indeed their first published design. Designed by Richard Amon and Victor Peter. Richard Amon and Victor Peter went on to do development work for Mind Clash's second release, which is to say Anachrony in 2017, and were the listed designers for their third release, Ruby the Inside World, as well as the upcoming Perseverance Castaway Chronicles. If you've listened to the show before, you know we are big, big fans of Cerebria. We are also big fans of Anachrony. And very much like other Mind Clash games, Dracarion has had a number of expansions, some of them available at launch, some of them available later. The strangely named Dalgard's Gifts was available at launch, and they recently put out a collector's edition of Tricarion with a new set of expansion modules, namely Dalgard's Academy and Dawn of Technology, last year. We, however, have a review copy of the sef- second printing of Tricarion. We only uh, expansions we had access to were Dalgard's Gifts, so we're not really going to be commenting on Academy or Dawn of Technology. So, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Tricarion? So, you're trying to slowly build up and acquire bigger and better acts, making sure that you have everything in place and all the right resources to perform the most exciting and profitable show. Mark, I, Mark, I was very, I didn't understand. I didn't know how to put this into words. So all I did was cut and paste my Coliseum. When we did, when we reviewed Coliseum, I just cut and pasted that over. It, no, it's interesting that you put it that way because this, this to me is a kind of interesting subgenre. So there are euros where you have contracts, where you're trying to fill contracts, but then there's also what I would call performance euros. Euros where you don't have a contract to fulfill, you instead have some sort of act or work or performance you're trying to do, and you need to get all your decks in a row to do that. So the most famous of these is probably Princes of Florence. Colosseum does this as well. Uh, most recently, we played The Magnificent, which falls into the same category. And it's interesting how many similar elements they share in terms of these kinds of satisfactions. They all tend to have a heavy premium on planning and a heavy premium on trying to run up the scoreboard in a certain way. It's like you can't just do the performance. You need to do it as best as possible and try to rack up the modifiers to get it done the best way possible. Yeah, they have the same sorts of like tempo, like very stressful and, and a timing pressure like we had in yes. our games where you have to make sure you have the, the big act ready and so you have it all timed out so it all comes to this crescendo in your final turn type thing absolutely and they all tend to be games where you can get by with the bare minimum but you're never going to go anywhere with it you have to force yourself 
to go for bigger and better things. Like lots of euros, can you can just piddle around in the middle and even win. You know, if if you just keep con- satisfying contracts, you can you can do fine. And if you just satisfy contracts faster and churn through them faster than other people, you're going to be fine. But in, in a lot of these performance euros, you're never going to be forced to go and go after that more ambitious, more difficult, higher prerequisite performance. But you have to in order to be even remotely competitive in the game. And that's definitely something with Tracarion. So let, let's talk about that aspect because rarely do we play Euros with this emphasis on planning. You need to have all of your ducks in a row or things are going to go nowhere. Yes, because in Tracarion you have these different spells that you perform. And these spells take... Illusions, Michael. Illusions, sorry. You have all these different illusions that you need to perform. And these illusions take components. And you can't be wasting your time buying separate components for different illusions so you sort of have to look in your little book which is fantastic your your workbook every player gets their own little workbook and i think this is part and parcel of how this is true this is why everyone gets a book because you need to plan out your whole game the game would be borderline unplayable without the workbooks so you have to look down the line because there are three different levels of of spell and you illusions michael you have to there are three different you want me to stop (laughs) <laughs> levels of illusion. I can and stop if you want. No, not at all. <laughs> yeah, all right. Three different levels of illusion, and you sort of have to know which illusion you're going to get for the third level. So you're you're seeing what components it takes and what components you're starting off with and sort of, you know, join the markers. You know, so second, I'm going to take that because it uses all of, almost all the same components. I only need one or two extra things, and that's my game planned out, and then you just try to get the best result you can. A single material off, a single dollar off, a single action point off, a single placement off, and you're not going to be able to do it. Now, the game's not going to punch you upside the head as a result. You're not going to lose a whole bunch of points and your workers aren't going to starve. But you absolutely need to keep up with this sort of escalating tension of doing bigger and better things in order to be even remotely competitive. If you're you're happy to just completely go and repeat the same trick you did in turn one and, you know, be almost lapped by the other players, that's fine. You can absolutely go do that, and the game's not going to stop you from doing that. But by the same token, if you want to have, you know, be with even 30 to 40% of the score of the victor, you need to push yourself. Look, say, okay, well, I have these components. What other? Oh, I guess I go need to go make a big shopping trip for this other thing, and so okay. And I, 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 I'm, I'm emphasizing this because even when compared to some other games where you really have to plot out your turn in advance, I'm thinking about some splatters like Antiquity or Food Chain Magnet or things like this. Food Chain Magnet and Antiquity, you can pivot. You can try to go off and do a different thing because your initial plan didn't work. You know, you're being undercut by your opponent in Food Chain Magnate, so then you have to go and either pursue a luxury strategy or undercut them more or anything like that. But here in Tricarion, you need to get things done in a specific order or you're not going to get it done. Yeah, I'm sure people who have played this dozens of times will say that I've got it completely wrong. But if you don't get a couple of level ones and get them going so you can get your level two because it has a very interesting system where you have a fame track. And you have to get to, uh, 16 fame to get that level two. So you're going to have to get You two. think an assistant's going to consent to being sawed in half if they've never heard of you? Exactly. You need this You think fame. that elephant is going to agree to be disappeared if you're just some schmuck off the street? Exactly. You go to the, the zoo and say, I need to borrow your elephant. And they're going to look. They're going to say no. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So two level ones to get your level two, and then you have to run those so you get to 36 so you can get your level three because you only have six turns in order seven. to seven. You only have seven, you only have seven turns in order to do all of these things. 
Yeah, it's uh, I, I I really feel even after I started getting a better handle of the game systems, you know, game on game, where yes, I am pushing myself successfully get to get to that level three trick. I never felt like I was doing anything other than failing constantly. <laughs> like just even by the skin of my teeth, being able to get this plan to fruition, I never really felt like I got a handle on anything. Just because, again, the planning demands are so profound. And a lot of people love that. A lot of people don't like playing improvisational style of games or the kind of games where you can pivot. I, however, really do appreciate where there, you know, I, I had the chance to improvise or adapt or change gears uh, instead of the contexts in Tricarion where, oh, you're a dollar short? Guess that placement does nothing for you. Yes. I had two turns in the last game we had where it was like, I'm sorry, but your turn meant nothing because someone had taken an action. And so the the two other actions you took this turn in order to lead up to your last action mean nothing yeah. now. And you'll just have to wait till next turn. I've won games of Tricarion where that happens. It's it's bizarre. <laughs> and Anachrony does the same sort of thing where you're constantly behind the eight ball. You're, you're thinking you're not doing anything, but you know... Every, uh, fortunately, everybody else is under the same thing. Really? The, the, you, you, you felt the same pressures in Anachrony that you did in Tricarion? I did. That's fascinating. I, I don't. I, I mean, I feel pressures in, in Anachrony, obviously. It, it, it's a it's a relatively tight economic model where you have to pick your spots. But I felt be, precisely because of the way the worker placement works that I had a greater flexibility in Anachrony. Tricarion, the way that it works, is at the top of your round, you pre-plot where all of your workers are going to go and that's where the big mistakes made. In if if I'd had the opportunity in Tricarion, like I do in Anachrony, it's like, oh well, the place that I had initially thought this worker should go is not such a hot idea. Well, I'll just go send them somewhere else. That le- that's what I'm talking about in terms of adaptation and improvisation that Tricarion doesn't let you do. True, and not only that, there's only one path to victory, and it's only performing you know that level three trick or those tricks. There's no other you know. I don't know. You might if you got a whole bunch of level twos, I could see you doing it. True, but it's still the tricks. It's still just there's tricks. No yeah. other sideboard illusions, Michael. No, all other illusions. It's all you know. There's no other little mini games you can play over here, or a bunch of you know uh, vict- end, vict- end game victory conditions that you can try to satisfy. There's none of that stuff. I do. I do like it when a game is focused like that, though. I often comment that a lot of euros, especially middleweight euros or, or medium heavy euros, are unfocused and slapdash, and you get point salad all over the place. I do appreciate how focused it is. I just wish that the planning requirements weren't quite so tight. Because just to compare it to some other, uh, you know, other worker placement games, just just Uwe Rosenberg games, for example, like you know, in a, in a feast for Odin, you've got coins and. It, if you need to, you can throw coins at a problem and get things done with a certain degree of flexibility. It's not cheap, and it's usually not a good idea to do it all the time, but you can. I mean, then there's Caverna, which takes it too far. You have rubies falling from the sky, and rubies can do almost anything. Uh, but, you know, there's jewelry in, Hall- in Hallertau. Tricarion has this resource. They're called Tricarion Stones, and you can use them to try to supplement some of your failings in other ways. But, but I, I just feel the system is too parsimonious with them. It just yes. you, you don't have that kind of flexibility that I would like. And I feel that a higher degree of Tricarion Stones might have helped in that sense. Yeah, I think we should go back and just talk a little bit more about those cards you're talking about. So everyone has a hand of cards, and you have a certain number of workers, and you're sort of placing out all the different, you know, worker placements you want to go to. So you put them out there, and then everyone reveals at the same time. And I think they did a great job of being a little bit different than other worker placements. You're sending different workers that have a different pool of action points themselves, and they can go on to different spaces on the board that give them even more action points if you get there early enough. And then you get to spend all these points at those areas to do multiple things if you get up to enough points. And like you said, the Tricarion Stones will boost those points so you get more stuff done. 
when it is the case that it feels just like a blind bid and I put out my allocations and it just so happens that I'm the second player in turn order and the first player in turn order got to the spot that I desperately needed and now I'm an action point short and I can't do what I need to get done, that's where I feel the planning doesn't really come together in a way that I find satisfying and I wish I had the ability to pivot. But when it comes to the action point system, I really think a lot of Tricarion strengths come together when it comes to one worker space called the market row because... You can't buy goods with a great degree of flexibility unless you throw money at the problem. And money is very tight, but at least it's a little more fluid than the amount of income you're going to have in terms of Tricarion stones. So if you need to get something done right away, you can get it done more expensively. If you have action points to spare, that can reduce the price. If you have lots of time because you've planned things out in ahead, you can do things at a very, very leisurely pace, put it in order for next turn, and then the goods are going to show up. And that interaction, those different kinds of trade-offs of money versus time versus action points, I really like how that comes together in terms of the market row. The other areas to send your workers, not so much. I was going to say, and then the one place where it does fall apart is on the downtown area. 100%. Because it also shows how important the first player player is because you get very essential things done in the downtown. You get your new spells there, you get extra workers there, and you get money there, which is, you know, super powerful. And there is, you know, a plus two action point, plus one action point, and a zero. And your normal workers need that plus two action points in order to get anything done there because it's all three action points. And even some of your better action, uh, better workers start with two and they need the plus one. So if you are in a position where the the placement got skunked out from under you just because you guessed wrong at the top of the round, meh. Yeah, so that was the thing. Uh, I didn't get the money I needed. Yep. You know what I mean? So it was like sort of this cascading, it, cascading thing that now my whole turn is done because I didn't get that for initial placement done. Yeah. And again, some gamers, that's what they love. They love that kind of combination of risk and planning. For me, I'm okay with planning. I'm okay with blind risk. The two in combination rub me the wrong way. When they interacted, again, in the market row where there's there's enough fluidity in the action spaces and it just meant that it was more expensive for me, that's fine. That's an opportunity cost. When it meant I literally could not do a thing or... I could only get that thing done if I was willing to take a huge risk based on what other people were going to do with their turns. That's the part where I felt like Tricarion wasn't playing to its strengths. So another thing that you can do that will help these actions is that you can go to the dark alley. And we, like we said, you can assign cards to your workers and they'll go to those places when you flip them up. In the dark alley, you can acquire different cards that will boost those actions even more. So maybe if we start getting more downtown cards, maybe there'll be something there that will help us out. Who knows? But the problem is that it takes workers to go there. That takes them away from doing other actions. And fortunately or unfortunately, these one of these games where you have to pay your workers. If you send them out to do stuff, well, guess what? That's going to cost you even more money. And some of them... They weren't take that cards. We can we can quibble over what take that means, but these are you know cards that were expensive to acquire and don't necessarily have targeted aggression. But some of them interfere with the planned point income or even sometimes dollar income of other players. And again, if you're going to have this level of planning, I don't like it when games introduce that level of undermining someone's vision. Someone might have been counting on that marginal dollar, that marginal fame point, and the fact that I had a special action card that that came out of nowhere. Well, that's actually, it's worth noting, first and second printing of Tricarion have a, have a rules change. In the first printing of Tricarion, the action 
the action decks were face up. You still pulled two and picked one, but you might have some idea about what someone's coming from. In the second printing, they're all face down, so you have no idea what's going to come up. For what it's worth, despite my criticisms, I prefer the face down version, at least because it cuts down a little bit on the, wait, no, let me read all the action cards before you pull any of them. And it might bog the game down rather considerably. Yeah, that would be painful. Yeah. So the other thing I should have talked about when we were talking about the downtown action was the fact that there's these dice there. And I thought that introduced also another interesting mechanism of the game. You're going to roll these at the beginning of every turn and it'll introduce which spells you can have, which workers are available, and how much money is going to be available that turn. And then you can spend more action points either to manipulate the dice or re-roll the dice. And I thought that was a nice way to mix things up. It was all right. But again, if you have a specific requirement... If you have a scoring condition or if you have a spell or if you have a plan that needs a specific result to come up and it doesn't come up, well then, and the game encourages you to plan this way. Like you talked about how the only flexibility you have, the only way to leverage your planning ability with respect to acquiring spells is to figure out, well, I've already got these materials and if I get these materials, that can help me overlap with each other's spells. Well then, you're putting yourself at the mercy of the dice to, to telling True, you what anachrony, spells are available. Anachrony brings in the same system, except they just flip up cards, right? Every turn you flip up which materials are going to be available this turn and which workers are going to be available this turn. So it's almost exactly the same system, except with cards instead of dice. Except for the fact that you don't need to fulfill specific requirements for every possibility of victory advancement. In Anachrony, if the resource that you want doesn't come up, well, then you can build a different kind of building and score points that way, doing the same kind of action. If you ha- but it, 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 it's as though you were playing Anachrony, and before every card came up, you said to yourself, I must specifically build a power plant here with my second worker, or my turn doesn't work. Meanwhile, Tracarion is putting in all the, all that pre-planning built into the game system baked in. So True, and I'll the, take your point, but not yeah, on those terms. True. No, it's not 100% the same, but it's slightly the same. And the fact that in Tracarion, you are always allowed to buy your own house of spells. So at least it's something that you can rely yes. on that you're going to be able to do. Yes, but the the... Materials will not lead you down that easy path by themselves. And I wish there was like just some generic spaces. There are some, there is a space on your board. What do they call workshop. it? Workshop. There's a workshop area on your board that will let you refill your spells. And it'd be awfully nice if they just had some basic actions there as well, like get $2 or get $3. Mm. Just some very minimal things so they'll just help you. It's like not what I wanted, but at least it'll get me through. Yeah, no, I agree. A little bit. I, I don't know if that would be the way to do no, it. I, I know, know, but it was just, you know. I will say this. Uh, despite the fact that this is a, you know, somewhat longish uh, Euro figure, you know, two to three, two and a half to three-ish hours with three or four players, and this is after you know how the game works, much longer your first couple of plays, uh, the rules burden is not considerable. It's a relatively straightforward game to teach, especially when compared to other things like, you know, Anachrony and Cerebria. And so that's that's for the good. And uh, I, w- I will say that the Dark Alley expansion is highly recommended. That's another change that happened from first, first printing to second printing. In first printing, they were kind of ambivalent as to which way was the actual way to play. In the second printing, they make it very clear, with Dark Alley is the sort of expected gameplay experience. You only play the other one if you want a basic introductory experience. And that, I think, is the appropriate tenor to take. Because the, the Dark Alley adds a little bit of extra fluidity, not as much as I would have liked. Uh, and it also adds those level three spells, which if you're going to have, sorry, illusions, Michael, 
And if you're going to have a game about forward planning, you might as well open up the horizons a little bit, which Dark Alley does. Yeah, and on the topic of illusions, I thought they're all very interesting. There's like four different schools of illusions, three different levels, like we said, and they all have all sorts of varying components that they need that sort of make sense to the actual name of the spell. Do they, though? In a way, they do. And I know in the end, it's like, okay, this one will give you three victory points. This one will only give you four. And, you know, it's it's all the same outcome, but it, it gives you huh. that sort of feel. Like, for me, at least, sure. it did. No, I'm, I'm glad you did, because I had the opposite experience. I actually took a note of how little I was paying attention to what was actually going on in terms of the thematic evocation of what was going on. Now, part of it was because I had very difficult time getting past the weird notion of time. You know, my, my worker shows up on Sunday to prepare a trick that's actually going to be performed three days before that. Whatever. That's not, that, that's not a huge deal. There are, there are, are, are bigger... Cognitive dissonances in games that I, I, I give a pass for. But, you know, I, I acquire a trick that's, you know, making an elephant disappear. And I don't feel like I'm making an elephant disappear. I feel like I'm satisfying a recipe and then sending workers out. So, there's one I, thing I, I, wish, and I ignored the art of the cards. I just wasn't paying attention to it. It's true. There is one thing there I wish they had. There was a little bit of interaction with the spells when you put them up in the theater. If you, like, connected them a certain way, you'd get bonuses. Oh, oh. But I wish there was some other relationship between the spells that made them flow together, that made more sense, like putting on a show. It's like this spell leads into that spell, which leads into that spell. And I just wish it had that more feeling of putting on a show rather than just I want to get four victory points and some money. It's instead just an arbitrary spatial puzzle where you might profit accidentally from the exogenous decisions of players before you. Yeah, exactly. So to sum up for me, I think that to a certain extent, Tracarion is not pitching to my set of gameplay preferences. This amount of planning coupled with this amount of possibility for things to go wrong outside my control is not really my bag. But I do really appreciate how the systems come together when they come together. Again, the market row is, is I think, an example of the kind of excellent Euro work that Amon and Peter tend to do. But overall, for me, uh, Tracarion is what I would call a good first draft. And the second and subsequent drafts can be found in Anacrity, its European inside world. Uh, even, even when you compare it to other non-Mind Clash designs, like your preferred Uwe Rosenberg, or even Cryo, you know, like other uh, solid worker placement games that give you a little bit of flexibility. In, in the case of Cryo, it's your ability to make your own tableau and or the existence of wild resources. Or even a game like The Magnificent, which we played recently in a similarly a, a performance-based thing, has even has a number of art touches that are vaguely evocative of it. Very different type of game, but still under the, uh, under the notion of putting on performances. So a solid first attempt, and I d- don't dislike it, but when, it con- when you consider its length... I, there are others I'd rather play. All right. I just have another quick points to hit. The, they had this whole sideboard where you put on advertisements. It seemed like a little bit of a catch-up mechanism. Cheap for the person that was in last place. Expensive for the person that's in first. Thought it was odd. I like how all the, in the in the adult version, all the different magicians had different abilities, which made it a little bit interesting, which would be, you know, change it up every time you play. Like you sort of touched on. Like how and when you put on the show seemed like the most fiddly bit of the whole game. Everything was nice and basic. You know, do what the space says. But then the theater system was a little bit... I didn't find it confusing, but I can see where players would. Then there was the... For the Dark Alley, there was the prophecy part that we didn't really talk about, which, you know, changed the rules slightly and and 
you could see what was coming up and you could see that you needed to go there to change it because it would mess things up. There was the two-player system that they added after the fact that I felt as though that should have just been, you know, in the game right from the beginning. It has that terrible, I would like to put all my friends in the game art style, which I just detest for whatever reason. <laughs> and But other than that, I think the, the, like the style of the artwork and the palette and everything really fit the theme of the game. And overall, I enjoyed Tricarion. That's my sum up. Well, thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon and Twitch. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Join us, friends and neighbors, ladies and gentlemen, for the second installment of Swag Presents Masterpiece Theater in honor of Prospero Hall and Mr. Vincent Diesel, Esquire OBE. Our first episode, we are now retconning my, my protracted rant about Groundhog Day as being the inaugural episode of Swag Presents Masterpiece Theater in honor of Prospero Hall. This is the second episode where we will be discussing the Fast and or the Furious. I have but two comments to make about the inaugural installment of The Fast and the Furious. Before a race, we see Agent Frosted Tips. He's approached by another walking stereotype. This yours? Yeah, I'm standing next to it. It's not how you stand by your car. It's how you race your car. You better learn that. Agent Frosted Tips reacts as though he's been granted some bit of Solomonic wisdom, or perhaps the most cutting put-down ever, or both. 13 out of 10. Mustang Report. We see once a fourth-generation Mustang, which, while being better than nothing, is clearly the second-worst generation of Mustang after the third. Walker, what were your thoughts on The Fast and the Furious? But he was in my face. Yeah, but now I'm in your face. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I meant to look at the director of this to see if he did any, like, post-apocalyptic movies because the way they took down these transports mark was right out of no 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 no. this is not a post-apocalyptic movie this is point break with cars because they pull in front of the car shoot a grappling hook through the front window and then launch themselves across so they could get a couple of thousand dollars worth of dvd players we're told it's in excess of a million and then and then they don't really even go on to like they just sort of this is supposed to be a brief segment they just sort of like (laughs) jump in do you know how many Pearls of jewels I had to omit to just focus on one? Did they... Did, you going to wrap this up I'm anytime saying, soon? Did they inject... What was it? They injected the driver or something? Or how did they knock out the driver? Or did they even, like, go any further than uh, that? The, at some point, there was intimation of tranks. Yeah, and, so then, I, and then what happens to the driver? Do they, does he, do they just keep sh- tranking him? Shh, sh- no. sh- And then it's like, hey, I think we need a whole FBI team to deal with a couple thousand dollars of missing DVD players. Millions. <laughs> Thanks We're told for, it's over a million. Thanks for the sponsorship, Panasonic. <laughs> and scene. And that concludes our episode of Swike Presents Masterpiece Theater in honor of Prospero Hall and Mr. Vincent Diesel, Esquire OBE. Join us next week for more? 
installment two. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done.